We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Thank you for joining us for our 53rd episode. Today, we hear from a teacher's teacher, one of the best PA educators I've ever had the privilege to listen to and to work alongside. Steph and I talk with PA Michael Statler. Michael Statler is an associate professor for the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at the PA program at UT Southwestern in Dallas. She is a graduate of the Surgeon Assistant Program at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and practiced in surgery for a multitude of years in a variety of specialties before entering PA education. She is a past president of the Physician Assistant Education Association, and she is a former dean from the PA program at Rosalind Franklin University in the Chicago suburbs. Michael, Steph, and I talk about some of the hot topics in PA education, and we learn a little bit about her program. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're really excited. Steph and I are excited to talk to you about your career. And uh, first, we'd really like to just start with your path to becoming a PA. Will you share with our listeners how you chose to enter this profession? Well, first of all, Kevin and Stephanie, thank you very much for the invitation to, uh, to be a part of your PA Path podcast series. It's really a real thr- a thrill to get to talk to you. This started a long time ago. I've been around since God made dirt. So I first got interested in medicine when I was babysitting, and I was babysitting for a nurse who let me borrow her anatomy books, and and I got hooked right then and there. I just, I couldn't get enough of that, and then I found my freshman year in high school that I would get my own little class kind of corralled in the back of the room where I could draw on the board and teach them anatomy, so getting into education roots there as well, but uh, actually building on that and to get back to your question, my mother was the one who introduced me to the profession. And I was finishing up uh, school at Baylor, my undergrad degree, and my mother had found this brochure about PAs. And she thought, well, this might be something that would be a good fit. And when I uh, read about that, I thought that that would just be an awesome opportunity. And as I looked, I looked into a number of different programs. And of course, the one that I liked because it was surgical based, was the program at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. It was a surgeon's assistant program. And yes, it had the dreaded apostrophe, but this was, you know, back in uh, 1980. Uh, But that was going to be a place where I was going to be able to do anatomy up close and personal and combine that with a future career. And for our listeners, uh, you know, as we all know, being educators, so often we have that applicant that we just cringe when they keep the apostrophe S behind the name. <laughs> Do you want to explain that a little bit further for them so that they they can uh, avoid that mistake? 
Oh, sure. Well, you know, back in the day, at the, the beginnings of the profession, there was an apostrophe S besides the physician as well as surgeon. And so there was, you know, a direct link and there were, you know, kind of implied ownership. And I can't tell you exactly when we got rid of that apostrophe, but it's something that if we see an apostrophe on an application, uh, it always makes our eyes twitch a little bit because we've we've been able to, to move forward from that. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm sure we got rid of that as quickly as we could. Mm-hmm. I always felt like it uh, it implies a level of possession as opposed to a, you know, a collaborative relationship that we have with physicians. Well, and you have to wonder now, as we've talked about, you know, not to fast forward 50 years, and we talk about a name change or a title change for the profession and changing that to physician associate, you know, with the roots in the profession, you know, it may help to explain why we get some question or pushback from some of our physician colleagues who may have been more comfortable or more familiar uh, having that apostrophe there. It creates a bit of a confusion with with other professions as well. I know that there are sometimes, you know, people will get it confused a little bit with a maybe a medical assistant or an assistant of others of, of other sorts. And as our profession has evolved, it really it isn't reflective of you know the the role and the responsibilities and uh, the scope of practice that PAs typically practice in. Yeah, I think that's so true, Stephanie, because our profession has evolved so many in so many ways. And, and for so oftentimes, uh, we have been confused with a medical assistant, because here again, the titles are so familiar. And even if you look at Associados Medicos, when you translate that, that can be translated as a medical assistant. So, I mean, in some respects, I think we still struggle with that uh, to a certain extent. And, and we saw this, AAPA, our sister organization, has been front and center with the title change for a number of years because they said, you know, PA or physician assistant doesn't really adequately describe what we do. So we, you know, we've gone down this path. AAPA in particular has invested millions of dollars into terms and looking at a title that is more fitting for the profession. And so, you know, that we landed on physician associate is kind of interesting. We already do have physician associate programs uh, that are training PAs. And, and actually, when you think about that, PAEA, not to really jump ahead, but at our last business meeting, we changed the name of our association to the PA Education Association. We were previously the Physician Assistant Education Association. But given that we have both physician assistant and physician associate programs already, and we will have programs in transition as the title change goes forward, we wanted to be more inclusive. And so we intentionally said, let's go with PA, because whether we're a physician assistant or we're a physician associate, we will be PAs. And so that was a large part of of why we uh, changed the name of the association uh, to reflect that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think on first blush, it seems like it would be fairly simple to just change your name, right? You just deem it to be so. <laughs> and, you know, heretofore, we shall be called physician associate. But maybe could you touch a little bit on why it's more complex than that from, you know, just maybe from a policy perspective and looking at state practice acts, that sort of thing? Oh, my gosh, it is much bigger than that. And it's funny that you asked that question because I think our students are like, oh, you just change it and you put on a new T-shirt and off, you're ready to go. But the reality is, is you need to go through all of your state licensing boards. Every program in the country would need to go through their coordinating board 
to change the name of the program, change the name of the degree, and we haven't even gotten into all the federal statutes that would have to be changed. And while the initials stay the same, to spell that out has so many different layers of complexity that it's going to take a while while the energy is there. It's going to take years before we actually see this move forward. Right after the House of Delegates where they approved physician associate, the Texas Board of Medical Examiners, which is home for me, was we're not going to even talk about this for two years. And so at the state level, you know, some of our state licensing boards are like, you know, this is not the priority thing that we're going to be addressing right now. And so and until that happens at the state levels, the, the programs can't move forward. And you'll need to change at the program level. You need to change all of your admissions materials, all of your curricular materials. Like I mentioned before, the degree will need to go through the higher education coordinating board. And, you know, and it's funny that you bring this up because when, when I was president last year in preparation to going to the House of Delegates and advocating for our programs, we hosted a town hall with our program directors. We're like, what do you think about the title change? And so everybody was like, oh, this is great. You know, the profession's moving forward. And, you know, everybody was very supportive. And we asked a very similar question to what you just asked. What about all the details of your curriculum and your admissions process and degree, et cetera, et cetera? And, and then you could kind of see that the wheels started turning. And these are program directors in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a pandemic, and they're trying to figure out how to do everything virtually. They're trying to figure out their program budgets were oftentimes cut. There were all these different impact points to the pandemic. And so there was this collective call from the program directors as part of that town hall that said, can you put the brakes on this? <laughs> because we got one or two other things that are a little bit higher up in terms of what we need to address before we would tackle this. Um, but here again, I, like I say, I think the, the energy has moved this forward. And so now we need to get behind that. And so the first step the PAEA took was a motion that was approved at the business meeting last year that said PAEA will support our programs. We didn't come out pro on anything about the title change. It was simply, we're going to support you. That's what we're here to do. Let's support you with this process. And then as we talked earlier, you know, this year we went ahead and, and changed the name of the association. But yeah, lots of moving parts with this. So it'll be interesting to see how this moves forward along with, I mean, there's multiple issues kind of cycling simultaneously within the profession. We're talking about changing our name. A couple of years back, the House of Delegates for AAPA approved optimal team practice. So optimal team practice is another issue that is moving forward at the state level to varying degrees in terms of redefining supervision to collaboration and, and getting more involvement with PAs at the state level. And, and then there's always this pesky issue of the degree for the profession. We have over 50 years gone from an associate to a bachelor's then we went to a master's. There was a lot of uh, heartburn, if you will, when we went to the master's degree. And I can remember being in the House of Delegates and the debate raging for like three days about what Dr. Eugene said or what he didn't say about what the profession was going to look like. Uh, but we transitioned successfully to the master's and we've been talking about an entry-level doctoral degree since 2009. 
And with the advent of more online programs and the availability uh, to uh, earn a degree in that type of platform, that has renewed that conversation. And so PAEA is uh, in the process of uh, preparing for a doctoral summit, which will be happening early next year. Um, this year has really been uh, a prep year, if you will. And give a shout out to Nicole Burwell, one of uh, our new president-elect, but she has chaired that group. And Nicole, along with her work group and an external consultant, have been interviewing students, employers, PAs, whoever they can. What are the pros and cons of an entry-level doctoral degree for the profession? So they have all the information that they need so when they have the actual summit, that they can get to the bottom of that particular question and come forward with some recommendations uh, on how to, how to uh, take the next steps. You know, circling back to something that you said previously, but it kind of ties into some of the other issues that you that you touched on. And, and that is, you know, with the with the title change, the need to change some of the federal statutes. And and at the same time, you know, those federal statutes with Medicare, Medicaid and such would would need to all be revamped with the new with a new title. Additionally, each state has to open up its practice act. And, you know, not only for the title change, but also from the optimal team practice perspective. There are a lot of states that are kind of reopening their, their their practice act. And while that creates opportunity, there's also threat involved in opening up your state practice act. So I wondered if you might you might touch on that a bit too. And Kevin, certainly feel free to, to jump in on that as well. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think we we as a profession sometimes still feel this vulnerability since we're still relatively young. And, and while what I have been able to see with the actions with Optimal Team Practice to date, the responses have been categorically positive. But there's always that risk. You never know if you're going to have a state that is a little more conservative and that if you open it up, PAs, is there potential for there to be a more restrictive scope of practice that is put into place. As I mentioned to date, we have not seen that. But you know, the other thing that gets opened up with that that has popped up from time to time are other professions that kind of gets back to your earlier question that have a similar but different uh, scope of practice that we do, you know, whether it's like a, a surgical assistant or somebody along those lines, opportunities for foreign medical graduates. Do we get lumped in with other professions? Is there potential to get lumped in with other professions when we do open these things up? And fortunately, and you know, to repeat myself, but fortunately, we've not seen that. I think one of the things that works in our, our behalf is we have strong advocacy at the state and federal level. With not just PAEA, but AAPA is front and center in representing uh, the interests of PAs at the state level. And they have a a very well-established process for doing that. I think one of the interesting things for me is just kind of the perspective. When we, when you and I were first in Arizona together um, many, many moons ago, <laughs> there weren't that many PAs licensed in the state of Arizona. I think it was probably less than 600, maybe even, maybe even 400. And I was just talking to Dr. Danielson from AT Still University last week, and we have now over 3,500 licensed PAs in the state of Arizona. So the impact of a sunsetting of a, a practice law or, or some 
deleterious change that comes through. I, I would think, as you said, it's we're much better protected now than we were, you know, 20 years ago because there's so many more PAs practicing in a state, so many more practices that rely on their PAs mm-hmm. to to deliver care and access to care for patients. But you're right, it's not without some potential headaches. Well, and you know, but I think the success of what you described, I saw recently, Kara Carruthers, our current president, and I had occasion to go to a meeting of the Asociados Medicos in Puerto Rico. And so they're trying to get EA practice laws changed in that territory because currently it takes two to three years to get a license as a PA to practice in Puerto Rico. And so the laws uh, don't work uh, to the benefit of the PAs. And, and so the practice, and much to the question you asked earlier, Stephanie, about role confusion, are these medical assistants versus a PA and what really is the difference? Um, but the success of what we've had here is now being targeted in Puerto Rico. When we had the conference, uh, all four uh, cross orgs were present. Michael Poe, who is uh, the advocacy guru with AAPA, was front and center. He is such an eloquent speaker. And but as he went through all the different practice guidelines, it was just you know such an education to hear what has been done successfully and use that as a template to move forward there. So you also brought up the other hot topic, the big one, which is the doctoral degree. And I appreciate mm-hmm. you you know, just teeing it up right away. Years ago, they had a doctoral summit. And, and I thought it was a very thoughtful summit where they brought in perspectives from all the different professions that already moved towards the doctorate. They looked at a plethora of data that had been published related to those doctoral changes. And really, at that point, the only people that seemingly benefited from that degree change, at least in 08 or in 09, were the universities that were able to glean more tuition from students that were you know, presumably taking on more credits to get a doctorate. What, what I think is interesting for me, at least, is uh, recently having gone and put my curriculum through the University of Arizona Faculty Senate, the comment came back from the faculty that 108 credit hours is a doctoral program. And and Dr. Davis and I kind of, we, we wrestled with this a little bit last week in the sense that, yes, it's, it is definitely the number of credit hours is doctoral in nature, but the vast requirements that we need to deliver to make sure that PAs are ready to practice clinically may not allow for the additional doctoral level courses that typically you see in a doctoral program to help our students really be well prepared with a very strong academic doctorate or a clinical doctorate if that were the case. So I just wondered if you have any thoughts on that and where you see the tea leaves might be landing from your own perspective, maybe not with the PAEA hat, but just from the world, according to Michael Statler. <laughs> well, as one who is very late in her career now working on my doctorate degree, <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a couple of thoughts on that. Probably the biggest thing, Kevin, I see with that is there is going to be so much variability by institution. And I don't know that we can categorize it by private versus state, but uh, just in my experience of doing this for a while and seeing what the higher ed coordinating boards at the institutions will require. I look back in time to when our program transitioned from bachelor's to master's, and we had to demonstrate new curriculum, new content to warrant that additional degree. And so what I would anticipate for some more conservative institutions 
even though there's 108 hours and 108 hours may be consistent with a doctoral degree, some institutions are still going to say, you know, I need to know what you're adding, what you're doing differently that warrants this advancement in the degree. Some are going to be much more accommodating to that, but I do expect there may be some pushback. And, and then the, the, the thing that comes up with adding more content, there's no way to add more content to where we are now. I mean, on average, we have, what, about 27-month program. To add more content, is that going to mean an additional semester or two semesters? If we add another semester, you're adding more tuition. You're adding more tuition. You're adding more student loan debt. You're adding more time to the overall uh, curriculum for the program. Will people say, well, if I'm going to invest this much time and this much in, in terms of my tuition, is PA the path that I want to go? And I consider maybe an alternate career path. So I think there's going to be a lot of variability. One thing that was so helpful from that first doctoral summit is they came out with specific recommendations in terms of endorsing the master's degree. And so people were able to use that. There was support for if you wanted an advanced degree after the master's, well, by all means, go ahead and do that. And that opened the door uh, a lot for people going into administration or education. And so to fast forward to next spring, once the dust settles on the, on the summit, I hope that they're going to be able to come forward with additional recommendations for the profession to move to an entry-level doctoral degree. There's a lot that needs to happen. If you look at the current number of doctorally prepared faculty, you know, if faculty need to be at or above the level where the students are, our program faculty aren't there right now. And even though there's a number of online doctoral programs where people can get their doctoral degree in a you know, relatively short amount of time, they still need time to do it. And they need you know, uh, tuition support from their institution to help facilitate that process. You have curricular uh, innovations that you'll need to put into place. And, and, and then you even back up. Every time you make a change in your curriculum, you got to think ahead to the next admission cycle. Because if I'm going to change prereqs, if I'm going to change the curriculum, whatever students are coming to into my program next need to be mindful of those changes so they come in, you know, fully aware of what would be expected of them. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves because there's going to be, uh, I would imagine, quite a variety in terms of responses from our host institutions. I think uh, I think we can all agree that on a number of fronts, we uh, we are in for an adventure for the next few years in our profession. Yes. <laughs> well, if we can switch gears just a little bit, uh, you artfully uh, transitioned the conversation away from yourself, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take it right <laughs> I'm gonna take it right back to you. We'd like to hear a little bit about a little bit more about your journey, uh, you know, into clinical medicine and then also into to an academic career. Now, you went to a surgeon's assistant program. Is that correct? That is correct. And so the the core curriculum is the same. You know, when you graduate, you still take the same pants degree. And, you know, while I went to University of Alabama in Birmingham, uh, they have now changed their program to a PA program. So there's no confusion there. But you're absolutely right. I went to an SA program. And, and the only difference really was all of my clinical rotations were surgical. And that was, you know, that was just a perfect fit for what I wanted. And, and so that teed me up beautifully to uh, start 
my first job out of school working in cardiac surgery. So I moved up to Chicago, first time in the big city. Uh, was That was amazing in and of itself and worked in open heart surgery for about eight years. They had, they knew to go to UAB if they wanted PAs. And so that was a nice pipeline. And I had some uh, mentors that helped uh, in terms of my transition. I did pre-op evaluations. We assisted in the OR and then uh, post-operative care. And so you really got the full gamut of working as a surgical PA. Uh, I found over time that I really liked the critical care piece of it. You know, it was just very dynamic being in the unit. You know, there was always something going on, whether, you know, it was a, a dysrhythmia, it was a ventilator issue, it was, you know, something going on with the kidneys. We had patients who were newborns all the way up to older adults with end-stage cardiac or valvular disease. Uh, so you thinking on your feet, uh, a lot of hands-on procedures, working with a variety of different consultants, and then the ICU nurses. You know, the ICU nurses are a special breed. And I, I owe so much of my professional development to those ICU nurses that took a very green graduate and really kind of helped show me the ropes. And so I did that for about eight years. As I, as I mentioned, I was in Chicago and uh, Chicago is known for, you know, some pretty hardy winters. And so I got a call from a headhunter in the middle of one of these really wicked winters. And they said, do you want to come to Arizona? like, yes, can I? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> you know, I'm ready to get out of this mess. And so uh, I went to work for Mayo Clinic. And the first job that I had with Mayo Clinic was with a head and neck cancer surgeon. And you talk about a gear shift because I went from cardiac surgery and working in an ICU with a, a relatively simple premise. You, you have to have a pump. I mean, you just have to have a pump. And so whether you're a newborn or whether you're, you know, a, an adult, you have to have a working pump. And what I found with head and neck cancer is you can live without an ear and you can live without a nose and a tongue and a larynx. And so it, it that was a major gear shift. Those patients were totally remarkable in the bravery and in, in, in meeting their cancer head on. Um, but when you're missing part of your normal anatomy, people look, you know, when you're at the grocery store and you're at Target, people are, are going to take note of the difference in your facial expressions and just your overall anatomy. And the surgeon I work with used to say all the time, those that mind don't matter and those that matter don't mind. And, and I thought that was really brilliant. I think I found out later it was Dr. Seuss. Um, but in any event... It's still, you saw patients struggle with their image because it was so much change in their ability to talk or not talk and, and just how they would eat, just very basic things that you did. And in and, and all candor, I struggled with that a little bit. And an, an opening became available to uh, switch sides of the curviform plate, if you will <laughs> allow me an anatomic reference, that little bone that separates the, the nose from the cranial cavity. And so I switched sides of that bone and got into neurosurgery. And, and that, you know, that was back in the unit again. And so I, you know, when I think on my clinical career, I did like the OR because of that anatomy connection, but I really, I really like the ICU uh, quite a bit. So how did, how did academia come calling for you? <laughs> well, it's interesting that you asked that because I, you know, as much as I enjoyed that, I, I had been working as a surgical PA for probably about 14 years. And so I started to think about after another weekend of being on call, I started thinking about what's next. 
what can I do with all of this experience that's going to allow me to build on what I have? And I, about that time, I saw some uh, advertisements for uh, jobs in PA education. I thought, you know, I was remembering back when I was in high school, teaching my little class of classmates how to do anatomy. I thought, let's, let's look into this. So I interviewed in a number of positions, and I was very fortunate to get connected at UT Southwest. Jean Jones, who was the program director at that time and a longtime mentor called me on PA day in 1994 to offer me my first job in academia. And one of the, the beauties of coming to UT Southwestern, this was an established program. I had a number of different mentors that facilitated uh, my development. Uh, I found out, you know, as much as I thought I knew, I didn't know squat. There was a lot to learn about being an educator, um, but I had people who invested in me. And, and what I found, Stephanie, was when I got into the classroom, it was like this little baby turtle that had found her way into the sea. I just loved it. And as much as I liked being a surgical PA and getting my hands in there and doing all that stuff, I found I liked teaching medicine even more. And so, and, and, and I've not looked back since that particular time. And over the course of my career, I think I've worn every hat there is to wear in terms of roles in the program, from being a clinical supervisor all the way up to being a program director. Uh, and then uh, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about, I had a, a really unique opportunity uh, come up to work on as staff at PAEA. And I got to do that for three years and see the other side of PA education. And boy, talk about another steep learning curve. There was so much to learn there. but being involved with developing resources to help programs at the national level was really, really challenging. And, and we worked with CASPA and uh, with the clinical education team. And, and probably the biggest piece uh, was working with, with Kim Cavanaugh on the development of this brand new exam, developing a brand new uh, exam development platform a whole line of exam products and to see how that started uh, and see how that's grown. Oh my goodness. That is just, you know, that, and I remember, you know, meeting with the board and talking about, you know, getting approval for spending all of the money that it was going to cost to launch this. And there was a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of consternation. You know, if we build it, will they come? And you know what? Um, looking back now, uh, it's just been a pretty remarkable opportunity. You were the first PA on the staff in mm -hmm. the history of PAEA, weren't mm -hmm. you? Yeah. Yes, I was. And now there's been, you know, multiple other people who have stepped into that role. Well, that's good. That's good that it didn't <laughs> stop after you. <laughs> and and uh, after that stint, you decided to go back into the academic world at Rosalind Franklin University, where that's you correct. became the program director and then their mm -hmm. associate dean. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. When I was at PAEA, like I said, it was a huge growth opportunity. But you know what I missed? I missed being in the classroom because that was the thing, you know, that I said earlier, I really enjoyed that energy of the program and being connected with students and seeing those, you know, light bulb moments and whatnot. And so I figured with all of the collective experience I'd had up into that point, including working at PAEA, I was like all ready to be a program director. Well, you know what? You find out pretty quickly. <laughs> I don't know that anything fully prepares you for being a program director. It's quite a quite a gear shift. But you know when um I was just reflecting on this um at the forum uh recently, I went out to dinner with uh, the crew from Rosalind Franklin. 
And I had hired five of six of them. And I had this proud mama moment like you wouldn't believe because looking at they've been there coming up on 10 years. Two of them are now program directors. One is an associate program director. And looking at the difference that they make, you know, I think about something you said, Stephanie, when, when you were accepting your award, you talked about, you know, being a leader. It's not about you. And it is about enabling others and promoting their growth and their development and being able to see that and know that, you know, you had some part of it, you know, that that was pretty good. And so I was program director at Rosalind Franklin for about five years. And then we had a change in the dean position, which opened up yet another opportunity to transition into an assistant dean position. And so, you know, the more we can get more PAs into leadership, you know, at a variety of levels at the institution, that just is all the more better for our profession. Uh, but here again, wearing lots of different hats uh, with my role as an assistant dean and, and always try to make sure things get back to the PA program. But when you're in an upper level administration position, you can't play favorites. <laughs> so you need to also look out for all the other programs in the college. And, and I think being an educator, you see what the opportunities are for in two of the committees I chaired. I chaired curriculum and uh, promotion and tenure. And what you saw there is, you know, people needed some direction. How do you put together a packet for promotion? What goes into that? So we put some guidelines together. What do you need to do if you want to add a new, develop a new course or change an existing course? So we put together guidelines for that. And so once you're wired as an educator, you know, I don't know that you can turn that off. Uh, and, and then it just becomes opportunities for how can I just reinvent this uh, at a different level? So if you could see us on camera i'm smiling because and you and i know michael knows why i'm smiling because she is <laughs> the master list maker checklist maker from the moment we worked together at midwestern university that was just one of your amazing strengths another one though is your gift in the classroom and i i think given how many pa educators listen to our podcast I think it'd be really a, a great opportunity for them to hear about your process, because truthfully, you're one of the best educators I've ever worked with. Your ability to command student attention, to deliver to the learning objectives in an entertaining way that is, it makes it seem like a two-hour lecture is 20 minutes, is a gift. It's a gift that you've always possessed. And I wonder if you could maybe share with us what your process is when you're taking on a new lecture and how you find ways to slide in those really key learning moments where they stick like glue or or even utilize some of your famous sayings <laughs> like it's like chrome on a bumper so could you share a little bit about that michael well, yeah, I'd like any good educator, we start with objectives. But the other thing that I think goes into it is one of the things I hadn't shared is I like to draw. You know, part of it is I draw anatomy. But when I'm putting a PowerPoint together, this becomes a process because it has to look like it has to have the right images. It has to have the right information. And so a lot of it, I think, is the presentation and then the delivery. The other piece that I think students so much is when you can provide connections to clinical experience so they can see what something looks like. And then the other thing that is also critical is to engage them and to make things interactive, ask questions, use case studies, do role plays. One of my favorite lectures is personality disorders, and I act them all out. 
And so I get student volunteers to come up and help me. And those students categorically, they're like, wow, I really got to see that. And, you know, I start with a disclaimer. Please know I'm not trying to portray anybody in a negative light. I want you to see this pathology. And so we have these role play activities where the students will come up and they'll interview me. And based on my responses, you, you know, it's quite an experience for them where they've never encountered that before. So it really leaves uh, a positive impression. But I'll circle back to something that you just said, because circling back is actually one of those things that I say a lot and planting a seed and, and things of that sort. The students at Rosalind Franklin told me that they had uh, played Statler bingo. And so they had developed a bingo card of things that I say on a regular basis. So, but apparently I'm able to mix it up enough because nobody ever yelled bingo in the middle of class. Uh, but you know, there are just certain things that are, are um, part of the vernacular. And, you know, I, I just have to embrace that. That's who we are. <laughs> so I don't want to get away from this before we, we shift gears again. Do you typically, as you develop your, let's call it your canvas, which mm -hmm. are your PowerPoint slides or the way you're mm -hmm. going to communicate and illustrate information. Do you practice ahead of time? Or do you just kind of make sure you've got your, your nailed points across the entire canvas? And then you just go with it. You know, I think that's something, Kevin, since I have been doing this knocking on the door of 30 years, I don't do that so much anymore. But it's really funny that you ask. Because when I first started, I was not confident in what I knew. Even though I knew it, I had to like write it down. And so I would copiously prepare for a lecture. And I would write down everything I was going to say on this four by six card, including Hi, my name is Michael, and in parentheses, smile and look up, you know, because I just wasn't comfortable in my own skin. But as I, you know, I alluded to before, I had such good mentors at UT Southwestern. I think of Nish Orcutt, for example, and I would go and I would watch her. I was like, she is so comfortable in her own skin. I want to do that. I want to be there. And, and I think just by sheer repetition over time, you didn't need the four by six cards. You didn't need to, you know, but I always still have to look. You always have to week of lecture because you want to make sure it's up to date and whatnot. Um, but definitely, I did a lot of preparation prior to, in my early years as an academic. And, and, and that probably translates now to when I speak at a national conference, I still want to be prepared because I want, you know, I don't want things to get lost in well, one of the things that we always like to do as a part of the podcast is give you the opportunity to really highlight your program and talk about not only the program, what makes it unique, and then also what what you're looking for in a student. So what you know what an applicant might do to help set themselves apart as a as a strong candidate for your program. There's a couple of things about UT Southwestern because I've I've spent probably about 12 or 15 years of my career uh, here in Dallas. And uh, one of the things that I so like about this program, one are the faculty are here and they are as dedicated and hardworking as faculty at other programs across the country. But we also have just amazing students. And, and one of the things that I really appreciate about the curriculum is that it integrated in the didactic year. And so when you are in the cardiology block, for example, you are learning how to do a cardiac physical exam. You are getting the cardiology drugs in farm. We have an integration skills class, which is case-based. And so during the cardiology unit, there are cases on chest pain, uh, a heart failure exacerbation, and hypertension. So we intentionally put it all together 
hopefully facilitate the students connecting the dots. And so that is, you know, one piece that, that I've always really liked about our curriculum is just the way that didactic year is designed in particular. Uh, one of the other things I would say about uh, the program here in Dallas is, you know, driven by our mission statement and, and, and diversity and equity and inclusion are front and center in the mission statement and core values. And that is, is what we see in our admissions process, which is a very holistic uh, process uh, uh, used to uh, review applications and digital candidates for the program, uh, the diversity that we see in our student body, the diversity that we see in our faculty, I think is above what you see in the national norm. Here again, it is just a commitment to make sure that we have the faculty. So what have I heard from students when we, PAEA has hosted a couple of town halls in response to the issues that started with George Floyd in addressing systemic racism? We heard from students across the country that they were programs with nobody that looked like them. And so if we can start by having faculty and staff that look like our students, is that going to be a bigger draw to increasing the diversity in our student body? And so I think that there has been good success in that regard. Uh, so that is, you know, I think another, another real positive for, for this particular program. And the biggest thing that I see in, in people who apply to the program, you know, academics are strong. They've got good health care solid letters of reference and things of that sort. Um, but, you know, I guess the other unsolicited advice is on their personal statement, if applicants can't address if they've had hiccups in their academic record, that's a great place to say, you know what, during my freshman year, during my sophomore year, you know, a big dose of life happened. Okay, but then what did you do about it? What did you do to strengthen your application or get past those academic difficulties that you had. For someone who is a re-applicant, what did they do to strengthen their application from the time that they applied the year before uh, their uh, re-application process and current cycle? So that personal statement can be real bold in terms of uh, allowing uh, faculty to get a better sense of, you know, who that applicant is outside of what their transcripts are and their healthcare experience and, and leadership and other things that they have in their application. Yeah, and I think sometimes applicants uh, are either coached or they just have an inherent concern that, you know, a hiccup, as you put it, or, you know, a, a life challenge or a, a academic semester that didn't go their way is a sign of weakness of some sort, or it's going to count against them. And, you know, I think most programs, I know certainly we have incorporated, and I know most, if not all programs really do make make an effort to look at an application in toto. And, you know, I, and I think everybody understands that life happens and not everyone has a linear path to the PA profession and to, and to success. And so I think being able to hear from the applicant's perspective, how, you know, what that was, and even if they don't choose to share the exact details, just, you know, the kind of the nature of the type of challenge that they had. And I think hearing their story of overcoming becomes the powerful piece of the, of the story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, it's life's not about making mistakes or, you know, having challenges. It's really about how you respond to those and, and what you learn from them and what you carry forward from those. And I think that's really astute assertion on your part to say, Hey, you know, tell us about it. We want to hear about it. Cause that's really kind of what makes your story stand apart from from other applicants. Well, and along those lines, I want to circle back to something that you just said about asking for 
help. When our students first start, when we bring them in at the beginning of their first didactic semester, they're assigned a faculty mentor that there is going to be with them the entire time that they're with the program. We meet, the faculty mentor meets with them, you know, at least once a semester, but if they need to meet more for whatever reason, they are their go-to person. But the first thing we say is ask for help. And for some reason, students are so resistant to asking for help. And I say that knowing that sometimes faculty aren't so good about asking for help either. But students can be so resistant to asking for help, such that the only time you realize that they are in trouble is when you get an exam grade and they haven't done well on an exam. And that's when you find out that there's a big dose of life or there's something else that's going on in their personal life. And had you known about it before the exam, you could have proactively taken steps to try to help them out ahead of time to avoid any sort of academic difficulty. We tell, you know, we encourage them to do this as a mentor. I am forever reminding students to ask for help. And, and I, what I, how I try to frame that with them is if you will ask for help as a student, I see that as a strength. Because if you will ask for help as a student, you will ask for help when you are in clinical practice. I hope that when you are in clinical practice and there is a situation with a patient that you don't know what the answer is or you don't know what the next steps are, I hope you will ask for help. That will make you a better provider and ultimately take better care of your patient. So we really try to plant those seeds, water those seeds to get them to do that uh, so that we can get out ahead of any potential academic difficulties that they, they might have. That is great, great wisdom. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us all of your wisdom and, and experiences over the years. You really are a phenomenal leader and educator, and I'm so appreciative that in my beginning stages of my career as a director, you were my right-hand person there to guide me and to help coach me when I needed some lessons in life and being a better leader and, and educator. We always like to give our guests a, an opportunity to share any last minute thoughts that they have before we close. So is there anything else that we haven't covered yet that you were hoping that we would talk about? I'm glad you brought up our time together in Arizona because I want to mirror something back to you. Uh, and it was lessons I learned about leadership. And one of the things that, that Kevin was able to do so effectively was what we mentioned earlier about being a leadership, a leader It's not about you. It's about enabling others. And you gave everyone in that program a voice. You gave them a job to do. You put together a team when we were we needed to have a team put together. Uh, but, you know, in terms of giving people a voice, I think it's sometimes you probably wish you hadn't done that to such an effective degree. <laughs> but <laughs> I just want to reflect that back because I think, you know, you had said during your interview, that you ascribed to being a servant leader and you demonstrated that day in and day out. And you really, you really put together a very nice team. And I learned a lot about leadership by watching you. That is very kind. Thank you. I, I think that we we all learn from each other. And if we're if we are humble enough to actually take a moment to step back and see the bigger picture uh, of the interactions between all of us. Even the things that maybe aren't as enjoyable to us as leaders are still valuable. So I appreciate that. And frankly, it's important for people to, to have a voice. And sometimes leaders have to have thick skin to be able to get through that. So thank you for 
Thank you for all that you've done for us. I'm so glad we had a chance to talk about some of the hot topics from your experience as a member of the Board of Directors for PAEA for those years and just uh, wish you the very best in the, the upcoming fall season. All right. Well, thank you. The same to both of you. Well, we want to thank our guest, PA Michael Stadler, for sharing her path to becoming a surgical PA and a PA educator. I think we can all agree that Michael's passion for teaching is infectious and her contributions to the profession will be part of our DNA for years to come. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Randy Danielson. Dr. Danielson is a professor and director of the Doctor of Medical Science program in the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at the Arizona School of Health Sciences, A.T. Still University in Mesa, Arizona. He has been a PA since 1974, and he has much to offer as we discuss the profession's growth, his own experiences in healthcare, and his leadership at the state, national, and academic levels. We also talk about the evolution of the doctoral degree in PA education, and the pros and cons we face with an entry-level doctorate. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.